John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at John 15, 12 to 15. One of the things that we realized, Jack realized real quickly last week, if you watched the live stream, uh, he had 25 minutes and he covered way too much ground and he felt like he couldn't get into the text deep enough. And so we all talked and we felt like we need to abbreviate and focus a little bit more in on some of the verses that we're covering. And so we're going to look at these three verses this morning and uh, dig into them. It's really four verses, sorry. Uh, so let me read them to us and then we'll start studying this. Uh, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So this is, uh, these are some really famous verses here. Uh, we're probably really familiar maybe with 12 and 13. Uh, and in this text this morning, we're really going to see two big ideas and three words. Two big ideas and three words. So the first big idea is how did Jesus love? He's giving his disciples some instruction before he leaves. Uh, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of those are considered the farewell discourse. It's Jesus' final instruction before he leaves. Anytime uh, it's our last words, anytime before we depart, the things we say right before we depart, those are, those are very important for us to pay attention to, and so that's no different in this case. And he's giving some final instructions to his disciples. And in this, he says he commands them to love as he loved. And the question comes up, how did he love? And we'll see that this morning. He loved in three very specific ways. Selflessly, sacrificially, and personally. We're going to dig into those uh, more detail. And then the other thing that we're going to see in this text is right in the middle there is a slightly confusing verse. Verse 14. It sounds conditional. If you love me... Or if you obey me, then I will love you and then I will call you friends. That's actually not how it should be understood. It's not conditional. It's an evaluative tool. It's a diagnostic tool. It's a way of actually verifying who the friends of Jesus are. It's a way of verifying who the disciples of Jesus are. Of verifying, do they have this love in them? They give evidence then of being the disciples. So those are the big ideas and the big points that we're going to see this morning. Let's look specifically at how Jesus loved and this command that he means literally uh, my clear instruction. There, there's, there's no muddiness about this instruction. It, it, it is a clear precept. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not love as you want to love. It's not love as you think you want to love. It's not pick and choose who you love. It's not even Love as you would like to be loved. That's radically different because that's what the Old Testament teaches. Leviticus 19.18. That was the commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't say that in this text. So what's Jesus doing? He's raising the bar. He's actually elevating the commandment. He's saying not simply love as you would like to be loved. Love as I have loved. That's specific. He's being very clear. The language that he uses is very clear and very specific. And the word that he uses for love is agapao, right? It's a fun word to say. You're familiar maybe with the word agape. This is agapao. And it's interesting 
because it means to be favorably disposed towards someone. And in this context, it's towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, towards disciples. To be favorably disposed towards one another. To consider one another's needs and rights as higher than your own. Now what's interesting is how he commands them to love is rooted in how he loved them. He was favorably disposed towards them, and he considered the disciples' needs greater than his own. And so he issues this command to love one another, and then he adds this phrase, and it's so important that we not miss it, as I have loved you. And that immediately raises the question, how did Jesus love? And so we have to think about how did he love, and how does this text tell us that he loved? And those three words are really important. He loves selflessly, he loves sacrificially, and he loves personally. The first, we don't have to spend too much time on because we've already seen it, and it's immediately where the disciples' minds would have gone. It may be where your mind went when he says, love as I have loved. They would have immediately thought to what happened just moments before this command. Do you remember what happened? They're in the upper room together. Just moments earlier, just moments prior to this, Jesus took off his outer garments he got down on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. And in that context, in John 13, he says, I'm giving you an example. Now, it's important that we understand this is unbelievable, extraordinary, selfless love. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's bowing to wash the dirty feet of failed, flawed, stumbling, bumbling disciples who are going to fall asleep on him in the garden. And yet he gets down on his knees and he serves them. He, he, he humbles himself before them. Now it's important that we understand that that approach or that example that he gives is not simply an example, it's also a message. So in other words, he doesn't just say, here look, I'm going to wash your feet. If you're a disciple, you've got to wash everybody else's feet. It's, I'm going to submit, I'm going to serve, I'm going to consider your needs, and I'm going to be faithfully disposed to you and consider your needs as greater than my own. But this is also the message and the way of the kingdom. If I, Jesus, if the Messiah does not humble himself, we do not have a substitute or a sacrifice and a means of having access to God. If we don't humble ourselves before God, before Jesus, and say, I need a Savior, I'm not my own Savior, I need a Savior, then we don't have access and right relationship to God. So it's not just an example, it's also a message. And here he doubles down on that message. And it's the second time in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, you, the new command, or the command I'm giving you, is to love one another as I have loved you. It's a past tense language he issued that same command in John 13. In John 13, 34, he says, this new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And what is he rooted in? He roots it in, as I have loved you, or how I loved you. Now, to understand this, this language in verse 12, the as I have loved you is past tense. It's really odd. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing in the Greek language. It's written in past tense, but pointing to a future action. You say, how is that possible? I don't know, I didn't write Greek, I didn't come up with it, but that's how it's written. It's past tense, as I have loved you, 
but it's pointing to a future action, and it becomes even more clear what that future action is. In verse 13, he says, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays humble himself to the utmost, Paul says, to the uttermost he's going to take to even humble himself to the point of death. And that's clearly what John has in mind here. That's clearly what Jesus has in mind here. And we're supposed to see and we're supposed to understand that Jesus loved sacrificially. Now, here's what's interesting. And this is where we begin to see and learn what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to love selflessly. We're supposed to love sacrificially. Laying down our rights, laying down our, our yielding our authority and our power and our, our, our way of being supreme and extreme. But you, if, you, if you're like me, you're going, I don't do that. And that's really impossible. And it is impossible unless we have seen and experienced the sacrificial selfless love of Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. What he's doing for us, he's, he's showing us that he's not only a good moral example of how we ought to serve one another, love one another, and encourage one another. He's also the means of how we become selfless people. It's through his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. It's through his death on our behalf. Jesus is not simply a good moral example of selfless love. Instead, he, because of his selfless love, he is the means through which we are radically transformed into self-sacrificial people. This is exactly what John says in 1 John, chapter 3, and 1 John, chapter 4. You can look at the screen here and look at these verses. He says, by this we know love. In other words, we would not know what love was if it was not for what Jesus did. That he laid down his life for us, and look at what John does. He roots how we love others in what Jesus did for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for, for the brothers. He says it almost identically again in 1 John 9, 10, and 11. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest or made known or made aware. That God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for us. We'll see that word in a second. And then verse 11. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What's Jesus saying in John 13? What's John saying in 1 John 3 and 1 John 4? We will not and we cannot love selflessly unless we have experienced, seen, and tasted the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus. The seeing what Jesus did for you and I, failed, flawed, stumbling, bumbling disciples. Seeing that he became, as we'll see in just a second, a friend of sinners, that he came to me who was weak and flawed and yet gave up his life for me. When we see that, when we understand that, when we embrace that, our hearts are melted. We are transformed. 
And we are moved and motivated to give and extend that same kind of love and sacrifice towards others. And that's what the gospel does for us. It melts our hearts from selfish, prideful people. And it moves us to love others in the same way. We forgive, not simply because we're told to forgive, but because he forgave us much. Maybe you wrestle with that. Maybe I just I have a hard time forgiving. Well, as a, as a follower of Christ, maybe the answer is, and this is what I think what Jesus is teaching us here, is meditate more on what Jesus has forgiven you. Meditate on the gospel. Look to what Jesus has done on your behalf. He forgave you infinitely more than what maybe someone could do against you. We forgive because He forgave us. We sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed Himself for us. We're patient and long-suffering because He was that way for us. We humble ourselves because He humbled Himself for us. We talk about the, this book called The Gospel Primer a lot. It's, it, we have a couple of copies in, in the uh, lobby, I think. Uh, but Milton Vincent is the author of it, and he encourages and talks about the fact that we should meditate on the Gospel, fix our eyes on the Gospel, and that is the stimulation and the motivation for showing love for others. Andrew, can we see that next slide with Milton Vincent there? He says, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I'm always willing to show the love that I've experienced to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. So when we see what Jesus did on our behalf, when we're melted by that, when we look at his sacrificial love, and we understand that it's his sacrificial love that enables us to be selfless and serve others, then we become more selfless people. And the last thing that he does here is, and shares with us and shows us and how he loves is he loves personally. So he loves selflessly. He humbled himself. We're expected to do the same thing. Do you see that? That's an imperative. That's not a suggestion. He loves sacrificially. We're expected to do the same thing. To sacrifice our rights. To, to again, yield our authority. This is what Paul says in Romans 14. This is what he teaches elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. And then lastly, and this is probably one of the most amazing things that Jesus does here. Is he loves personally and intimately. He calls them friends. He calls them friends. That's one of the most extraordinary titles that anyone could ever be given. Friends of God. And he says, you are my friends. Verse, we're going to skip verse 14 and come back to it. No longer do I call you servants. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer unwilling. That's the word there, slaves. You're no longer unwilling participants. No, you're my friends. He says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is hinting at and hitting on something that's unique here uh, between slave or foe and friend. The slave has no idea of the master's intentions. The slave has no relationship to the master. The, 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 the master and, and the slave is, is simply a formal relationship. It, it's it's, it's an it's a interaction, it's a business exchange. But Jesus says that's not the kind of relationship we have. The relationship we have is personal and intimate. It's close. I've come near to you, and I call you 
my friends. Now, what's amazing is, is the word friend here means almost the same thing as the word love that Jesus used. The word friend here means to be favorably disposed towards someone. I want you to love one another. I want you to be favorably disposed. I want you to consider the needs and the rights of others. And what does Jesus say? Because that's how I love you. I am favorably disposed towards you. What takes sinful man and makes him and gives him right standing before God? The answer is Jesus. Jesus turns us from objects of wrath to friends of the infinite king of the universe. This is extraordinary and amazing. For more context, only Abraham, in the Old Testament, only Abraham and Moses were called friends of God. And it wasn't even, when you read the Old Testament context, you read, you read the references to Abraham, you read, read the references to Moses. It wasn't that God appeared and said, Abraham, you are my friend, or Moses, you are my friend. It's all implied, or it's all someone else saying it about them. Only here do we have God looking at man and saying, you are my friend. And the question that arises, the question that has to be, is how do we get that? Well, how is someone called a friend of God? And the answer is the one who's saying it in the text. It's only Jesus who chooses, he says, them. They did not choose him. Who is favorably disposed towards them. Now here, just again, to, to understand the the extraordinary language of, of the fact that he's calling them friends is remember who he's talking to. These are failed, flawed, stumbling, bumbling disciples who, who are going to fall asleep on him in the garden, who are, are not going to fully believe at certain points, who are going to stumble along the way, who are going to mess up, who, who aren't going to uh, say the right thing, do the right thing, act fully in faith. And yet Jesus says he is a friend. He's, and this is actually how he's known in Matthew over and over again. He's called the friend of sinners. And that's what he is here. He's the friend of sinners. And that's what he's also to you and I. I want you to think about, for just a second, the best friend that you've ever had. The best friend that you've ever had. And then I want you to think about what made them the best friend. Think about the characteristics. Maybe go home and think about that this afternoon. Write down the characteristics. What was it that made them the best friend ever? Jesus is infinitely and endlessly better than whatever that friend did for you. This week was kind of hard for, for me personally, uh, and it sounds foolish, but uh, my our family pet uh, passed away. I had Lucy for 14 years. She's a golden retriever. I had her before Taylor Lee and I were married, and so that, that dog's been with me for a long time, and, and it was really, really hard. We, there's a reason we call him man's best friend. They walk with us through life, but the best that, that Lucy could ever do for me was drool and smile. That's the best she could ever do. She was a companion. She walked alongside me. She, she, she jumped on me, and, and I felt affection from her, but that's the best that she could ever do. Think about what's even better than man's best friend. 
friendship with a brother or sister in Christ. I have that, you have that with people here. Think about what they give us. They give us attention. They give us, they, 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 they walk alongside us, but they give us something more than man's best friend. They give us words. They give us humanity. They give us personal relationship. They, what do they do? They confront sometimes even. And that's good. That's necessary. Even better than that is a real brother or sister. They will tell you what you want, need to hear, whether you want. Think even better than that, a mother or father. They, they know you, they understand you. Think even better than that, a spouse. They're intimate, they know your darkest secrets. They know everything about you. They know you like the back of their hand. What Jesus is offering here is something infinitely better than all of those things. Charles Spurgeon says, all of those examples are dim candles in light of the sun. Dim candles in light of the sun. What Jesus is offering here is what we lost in the garden. Think back to the garden. What did Adam have with God? Intimate fellowship. They walked in the cool of the garden together. They, they talked together. He had full face-to-face -face access with God. He had an intimate relationship with God. But because he thought he was better, because he lifted his, his rights, his will, his authority over God and thought he knew what was best, that was severed and broken. And ever since that moment, we have been longing to be fully known, fully understood, fully accepted, and fully appreciated. And what Jesus is offering is saying, I am the one I'm the one who comes and knows you intimately and wants a relationship with you and invites you into the full favor of God and makes Him favorably disposed to you. That's extraordinary. And that's what Jesus is offering. The last thing, just quickly, that we see in this text is this second point, larger point, and that is verse 14. And, and the question is, how do I know if I have that love? How do I know if I've received that love? How do I know if that love is, is in me? And verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If we read that word as conditional, the word if, then we misunderstand the text. It's unfortunate, but in the original language in Greek, if can also be translated as when. So in other words, when you obey, when you listen, when you submit, when you love in this way, you know that you are my friend. And that's the entire book of 1 John. John takes that verse and expounds it in 1 John. And we don't have time to go into 1 John. The slides are on the app, and you can go look at this. But this last slide here shows you all the different ways that we can know if we are a friend of God. All the different ways we can know if, if the love of Christ that we're talking about here is in us and active. All the different ways we can know if we're rooted in the vine. All of these things are evidential. So in other words, if these are true in your life in increasing incremental measure then you can know that the love of Christ is in you. If you're loving in this way, and you're growing in your death to self, then you can know that the love of Christ is in you. And so as we close and we're going to transition, we're going to, we're going to sing and celebrate this unbelievable reality and truth that Jesus is our friend. I want to ask just a couple of questions. The first is, how do you love others? Is this how you love and this is so much, this is so necessary at this time right now. 
To love one another at this time would mean we have to get close, even though we can't maybe physically, but we have to be close enough to know what fears do you have? What worries do you have? Are we loving like Jesus? Are we coming personally to people in the flesh, near people, personally, enough to know what worries them and, and what anxieties they have, what, what fears they have? Are we loving sacrificially? Are we giving of our time or yielding of our rights? Are we loving selflessly? To be honest, most times that's not how I love. As a follower of Christ, I have to ask myself, is it because I'm not actually rooted in the vine? Or is it because I'm not meditating on and appropriating the good news of the gospel every day, looking to how Jesus loved me selflessly, sacrificially, and personally? And then the last question is, are you a friend of Jesus? It's kind of the same question, but are you a friend of Jesus? Do you know this kind of favor from God? How do I know, Neil? Have you submitted to his commands? Have you, have you submitted to his instruction? Have you bowed before him? Have you humbled yourself? Have you yielded your rights? Have you sacrificed yourself and humbled yourself before him? Is this fruit evident in your life? Yesterday, uh, Taylor and I took Addie Wynn to, uh, to Robert's Taylor. We were picking blueberries, and I was, I was noticing that on the, on the vine, there's, there's, there's unripe, there's kind of ripe, and then there's the perfect blueberry. And then there's a blueberry that, you know, has been there for a long time, it's cracked, and, and it's about to fall off because no one, no one plucked it. But at all stages, whether it's unripe or ripe or cracked and about to fall off, all of those blueberries were created to be plucked. And they display that there is life in this, in this vine, in this plant, in this bush. And so this is what we have to realize, that this fruit will overflow into our lives. And we have to ask the question, is it there? And if it's not, why not? So let's pray. Father, thank you.